So I was traveling the past couple weeks, and I was down in Costa Rica with the youth of the mission base there. And as I entered into a conversation there with an old friend, I could just see, I could just see the exhaustion in her eyes. I had known her when she first showed up at Youth of the Mission, an incredibly capable, energetic, vision-filled young woman, a natural leader, uh, passionate about the, the ministry that God had called her to, and she ended up meeting a, a young man down there, a great guy, and they got married, and she got pregnant, and every single day of her pregnancy, she threw up. Like from the day she knew she was pregnant, sometimes two to three times a day, she threw up. And then followed by that kind of pregnancy, her labor was days long. It was incredibly intense. And so by the time their daughter arrived, she was already shot. She was already done. And as you can imagine, life for her never slowed down. She was still a missionary in a foreign country, living in a foreign country, with all the things going on and all the responsibilities and all the cultural things that were going on. And so when I got down there last week, I get to see the exhaustion in her eyes. But it was more than that. It was more than just the physical exhaustion, because she needed a break. She did. I mean, there's no doubt she needed rest. But she needed something else. Something had happened in those intervening months during the pregnancy and all the demands of the, <clears throat> of the ministry and of being a new mom she had, become to, she, had, she had started to lose her vision. She had started to lose sight of her calling. She had started to lose sight of what she was there for. I think that happens to all of us at certain times. We get involved and we get and we get excited and we're and we're we're gung ho and we're and we get these epiphanies and we get these revelations and we, we go to, to church camp or we go on the mission trip or or we, we get in the Bible study that rejuvenates us and, and man we're excited, but then just life crashes in on us again. And whether it's the demands of being a young mom with, with young kids constantly around you or or being in the workplace and the, and the constant demands to perform and perform and perform. Or maybe it's a health issue that hits us from out of the blue. And nothing else stops. You know, nothing, nothing, nothing else stops. Nothing else says, oh my gosh, you've got this special thing happening to you. Let's just make everything else quiet down for a minute. Uh, that doesn't happen. Oftentimes those things come in multiples, not just one single thing, but multiple things happen. And there's danger from exhaustion. There's danger from the physical part, yes. But I really believe a greater danger is to lose sight of who we are called to be and what God is doing in us. And I think the disciples, I think Jesus knew that with the disciples. And so we enter into our text this morning with this really strange thing. It's, it's a supernatural thing. It's a mystical thing. It's, it's something that we don't often study because I just don't think we get it. I don't think we have a way to get our imagination around it. But we're going to try this morning because I think it is imperative to us 
to see the transfigured Jesus and understand what that means for us if we are to survive these storms that come. So pray with me, please. Abba, Father, you have gathered us here together. You have invited us, as Alex said, into worship and into obedience, into community, where we together are transformed, even transfigured, more and more into your likeness. And God, I pray that you would give hope today, that you would restore clarity of vision, purpose, and meaning in our lives. That like the dry branch, we would dream of the day that comes when we flower. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text this morning is from Luke 9. Um, traveling, it, it, you know, I was keeping up with the podcast, listening to the teachings that Norma brought and Andrew brought, and, and they've done such a fantastic job walking us through, but we get to this episode in Jesus' life, and we have to realize that we're at a turning point here, that this is the end of the season of Epiphany. This is the end of the season where Jesus is establishing who he is, where he's inviting the questions, the hard questions, as, as Andrew said, where he's inviting the worship and, and, and blessing the marginalized and including them as Norma taught. And we see the pinnacle of this Epiphany experience in what's known as Transfiguration. And in this transfiguration, there's also a turning. This is where he turns his face towards Jerusalem. And we walk into the season of Lent now, where we walk with him towards the cross and ultimately towards Easter. This is the pinnacle. This is, if you think about it, there are three times in Jesus' life where God visibly acts on his behalf. The first is at the baptism, where the Spirit comes down and the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Then we have this on the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, we hear the voice of God. The third will be at the resurrection when we don't hear the voice. It's not recorded, but we know it's there, calling Jesus from the grave, calling Jesus back from death. So we're at this middle peak in our story, walking with Jesus. Starting in Luke 9, verse 28, it says, Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and went up to the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became very bright, a brilliant white. Then two men, Moses and Elijah, began talking with him. They appeared in glorious splendor and spoke about his departure that he was about to carry out at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those with him were quite sleepy, but as they became fully awake, I think it says that to, to make sure we don't misunderstand that they were dreaming. They were, they were fully awake. They saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And there's various images that have been done throughout the ages of this. And we have to understand, you know, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Jesus, the word, stands between them in relationship to them, but also over them. He is the culmination of both the law and the prophets, as people will come to describe it later with that. And this glorious splendor, what, what is it? How do we understand that? And, and we're not told exactly. We're not told exactly what it was. Now, my personal, this is my personal two cents worth. So this isn't, uh, you can take with it what you want. But I have two theories. 
One, I believe that this is what Adam and this is what Adam looked like before the fall. Adam and Eve were just full of light. And then when it said God had to put skin on them or cover them with skin, it actually encapsulated that some. And again, that's just conjecture. I think probably more strongly, and the two are not totally independent of each other, but what we see here is Jesus' resurrected body. We see the body that he is going to walk into. And we see the body that all of us are destined to have as well. And what were they talking about? It says they were talking about this this thing. It says this departure, but that word is very specific. That word is exodus. They were talking about the exodus that Jesus was going to lead. Because again, with the imagery of Moses there, we see Jesus cast in the type of Moses, that he is going to be the one who delivers his people. He is going to be the one by his confusing and confounding approach in Jerusalem, his crucifixion, his condemnation, his death. In actuality, he is going to lead his people out. He has come to set us free. And we will follow him out of slavery, of sin, into freedom in the promised land. It would have been interesting to hear, wouldn't it? I wonder, if, I wonder if they even understood the voices. Can you imagine the talk, the beauty of the conversation that was taking place? But all things, good things must come to an end. So it says, then as the men were starting to leave, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for... It, and I can't... you got to do his... I mean, he's got to be stuttering. It, uh, uh, it, hold on! It's good for us. Well, let me make you a. Uh, uh, ta- uh, uh, can I get you some food? Hold on. Uh, how about I make a shelter? I mean, it's just literally gibberish. It says, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not knowing what he was saying. I mean, it literally, Luke just adds, he was gibbering. Luke was tongue tied. He didn't know what to say. He just started talking. Words were coming out of his mouth, they didn't make any sense. I do like the image, though, here of this might be the first, um, the first case of someone trying to put God in a box. I'll just make a shelter for you with that. But, but what it does instruct us is that the disciples clearly, at this point, still misunderstand Jesus and his mission. They don't get it. They're following, they're learning, but they don't get it. And that begs the question for me, um, do we? I mean, do we get it? Do we understand? We've all, we're all showing up here on Sundays. I mean, we're listening to the sermons, we're reading the text, but do we get it? Do we, do we get what Jesus is doing? Look, we all follow Jesus before we know Jesus. There's a huge misconception up there that, hey, I've got to know Jesus and then make this decision and then I'll invite him into my heart and I'll do this stuff. Yeah, I get it, but here's the deal. You have no idea. When you sign up to follow Jesus, you do not, you cannot know Jesus because we learn about Jesus as we follow Jesus. We come to know Jesus as we follow Jesus. 
The other thing is we can't know ourselves. One of the reasons why we can't make the decision, we don't even know ourselves. You cannot know yourself apart from Jesus. You cannot know your true self. You cannot know who you were created to be apart from a transformative encounter with the Savior, with the Messiah. So as we learn about Jesus by following, we are also learning about ourselves. And some of that is really tough stuff. Some of that is really scary stuff. And then some of that is really glorious stuff. But as Chris said when he introduced our new families here that are throwing in their lot with us, you don't do that alone. And guys, I mean, I know you stood up and let us announce your names and we all got to see you. You have no idea what you're in for. And I don't either. I don't. I don't know what we are in for together as you throw in your lot with this motley crew here. You all look wonderful. But we're going to learn as we follow Jesus. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice from the cloud came from the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, obviously, this means more than just listen. Right, parents? When you get your kids and you say, listen to me, you're not asking them to attune their ears to your words and consider them, are you? You're telling them, do what I say. That's what is, the Father is saying here. He's saying, obey him. Listen to him in the sense of obedient listening. Do what he says with that. Do we obediently listen? We talk a lot about it here. How we're so in our culture, the idea is hear the word, understand, and then obey, maybe. That's not what's happening here. Our only response can be hear the word, obey, and then understand, maybe, with that. Bonhoeffer, I've been mulling over this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's challenging. It's challenging to me. I don't like it, um, but it rings true. He says, only the believing obey, and only the obedient believe. The two are inseparable. We cannot sit in judgment on the words of Jesus and then decide whether we're going to follow or not. To do so is an act of disbelief. It's a faithless act. Our obedience, our hearing, our understanding is always inexorably tied to our obedience, our hearing. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, so they kept silent and told no one at that time anything what they said. Why? Man, you'd think this would be the thing that they would go tell everybody. We just saw Jesus and he was lit up. And Moses and Elijah were there. I mean, the, the, the superstars of the Hebrew faith. 
Why didn't they proclaim this? Um, we don't know. We really don't know. There's theories. Personally, I think it was so overwhelming. I think, I think it was so incomprehensible that they, they didn't have language, that it took years of following, that I think Peter writes in 2 Peter, when he writes back to the church, he references this account. And I think it probably took him that long to fully come to grips with what had happened. I think it was so out of the ordinary. I think it was so supernatural. I think it was so outside of our logical comprehension that they just, they were, they were speechless with that. And there are other theories to that. But we know that they didn't at that time tell this. Now our next bit of the story may sound like something that's totally off topic, but again, as we talk about here a lot of grace, Scripture is in dialogue with each other. And the ordering of scriptural stories is for a purpose, and it's to highlight. And oftentimes that highlight is to set two stories against each other, which highlight the contrast. And we see a significant contrast as we move forward. It says, now on the next day when they had come down the mountain, a large crowd came to meet him. So whereas it was three disciples before, now there's a large crowd. Where it was on the mountain before, now it's down off the mountain. Then a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son. He is my only child. The voice of God coming from the cloud. This is my son, my chosen one, my one son. There a man cries out, Here's my child, my only son. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams and throws him into convulsions and causes him to foam at the mouth. It hardly ever leaves him alone, torturing him severely. You see the contrast between the... In, the transfigured Jesus standing in perfect peace and harmony with all of history, the law, the prophets. Here a man comes, us. We come with our, with our efforts, with our children, tormented and seized. The contrast is stark. And he says, I begged your disciples to cast him out, but they could not do so. And Jesus straight from conversations with Moses and Elijah, straight with thinking forward to the plan he was going to do to set free his people, kind of loses his, kind of loses his cool, it looks like. I think the frustration comes out. You see the humanity. We've just seen the divinity. Now we go back to see the humanity of Jesus. And he gets on him. He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and endure you? Bring your son here. As the boy was approaching, the demon threw him to the ground and shook him with convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father. They were all astonished at the mighty power of God. But while the entire crowd was amazed at everything Jesus was doing, he said to his disciples, take these words to heart. For the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They did not understand the statement. Even though he goes, take these words to heart. Literally, let them sink into your ears. Let this sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. They didn't understand the statement. Again, they don't understand the glory, and they don't understand the humanity. It takes time. It takes obedient following. It takes reflecting back to understand things. Its meaning had been concealed from them so they could not grasp it. Yet they were afraid to ask him about this statement. And here's the thing. One of the earliest challenges of the church 
was how to understand Jesus as both God and man. The great controversies of the early church often center on this. There were groups that said, Jesus, look, Jesus was just a person, and he became God by what he did. He basically earned his way into divinity. And there there were others that said, no, 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 he was God all along. But but being God is something so different than man that he, he just looked like a man. He was really a ghost. He was kind of an apparition that he didn't literally have flesh and blood because that would have corrupted him. And these major sects would would split off and, and try to form their own version of Christianity. And thank God, the church, by the Holy Spirit and the early church, fathers and mothers stood in the middle and they said, no, it is both. Fully God, fully human. It is one of the mysteries of the church. It is one of the profound mysteries that sets Christianity apart from all other religions and all other beliefs is that we fully hold to the full deity and full humanity of Christ. But even in that, we want Jesus to be like a pill that we take and are fixed so we can go on our way. Instead of understanding that what that means for us, what this means for us, is that we are called to be likewise transfigured. The great early church theologian Athanasius is famous for saying, God became like us so we could become like God. We pretty much did away with that with the Enlightenment, rational thought. But I'm here to tell you, you can't get away from it in this passage. I believe it is true. I don't know how. Look, I don't know how. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what heaven's going to be. I don't know what this body is going to be transfigured, transformed once these lungs stop breathing and this blood stops flowing and this body gives out. I don't know what it's going to be like, but here's where we get our glimpse. Here's where we get the idea. Here is where as dead branches we dream of flowering. listen y'all we need to hold on to that dream we need to hold on to that vision last night in this space we had a very holy moment Catherine and Jay Wolf shared I'd encourage you to buy their book Hope Heals they spoke she suffered a young beautiful brilliant young mother three month old baby 26 years old massive brain stem stroke catastrophically alters her life. And as she sat twisted in her wheelchair on this stage last night, half her face paralyzed, half her body useless, and told her story, you could see that vision that she had it. She understood it. It not only sustained her, it gave her purpose. In the midst, I mean, we think we have it bad, we think we have it tough, we think our afflictions hurt. Not like that. Not like hers. And it wasn't just rest, it wasn't medicine that was sustaining her. It was a vision of who she was becoming 
in Jesus. Do we have that, Grace Church? Do we have that vision? I mean, what would a transfigured Grace Church look like? What would this community, all of us sitting in this room right now, those kids back there, if we could really get that vision, if we could really understand that calling, if we could really begin to see ourselves and understand ourselves, not just as individuals, not just as families, but as a church, if we could begin to see ourselves in light of the transfigured Jesus, in light of the one that says that God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then we were to do that. What would it be like? What would it be like? I just imagine the most beautiful, indescribable flowering that the world is desperate for. Theologian, the theologian Richard Hayes writes, the primary role of Scripture, a primary role of Scripture in the church is to bring about the conversion of the imagination. The transfiguration of Jesus, if we will let it, surely does this. As we come to understand this event and what it tells us about Jesus, we are also in a way transfigured. God comes to earth and takes on a body. A very real body, not a perfect or even a beautiful body, but a body, and it's human in every way. No transfiguration can change the fact they still recognize Jesus. But in this juxtaposition of Jesus' transfigured glory and the gritty humanity, the story of the transfiguration speaks most clearly into a world filled with suffering and sin, despair and doubt. Look, we don't know why only Peter, James, and John saw this. It seems crazy to me that, that this would happen and it would not be more widely seen, that, that Jesus wouldn't do this, but I'm not in control of the story. But I also know this, I, I need this. I need this. I need to see Jesus transfigured. My friend down in Costa Rica, she, she needs it. And we need it. We need it here today. We desperately need to see Jesus transfigured. We desperately need to know that the one who is both human and divine is with us. Human so that we can know that we are seen, understood, suffered with, and suffered for. Divine that we can know that there is true hope, there is meaning in the suffering and the struggle, and that there is something beyond the dirt, the sorrow, and the barrenness. Ask the worship team to come up as we transition to the time of communion. If you're a guest with us, our table is open. We don't dismiss by rows. You come up as you feel led. During this time, we, we share at the table of Jesus. We pray. If you need prayer, find someone that you trust. If you need to pray for someone, pray for them. We take up an offering during this time as well, and we reflect on these things. I want to ask you, I want to beg you, please, please do something with this. Question it if you need to. Throw all your doubt against it if you need to, but don't just let it be another story. 
somehow fix this image in your mind. And as you come to this table and you see the dry branch and you see the flowering branch, know that this cup and this cracker represent the promise. It's the seal of what has been done. It is the activity of what is happening now. And it is a promise of what is to come. So as you take that cup and you take that cracker, take it in that faith. And thank you for